Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and I'm honored to have with me uh, psychiatrist Lance Dotis. I'd like to just start, Lance, if you don't mind, uh, to read your, your bio. Uh, very esteemed uh, accomplishments. You are a medical doctor uh, and you are a training and supervising analyst emeritus at the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute and a current member of the new Center of Psychoanalysis in Los Angeles, which I believe is where you're now residing, and retired assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Lance has been the director of the Substance Abuse Treatment Unit of Harvard's McLean Hospital, director of the Alcoholism Treatment Unit at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, which is now part of Massachusetts General Hospital, and director of the Boston Center for Problem Gambling. Uh, Lance Dotis is the author and or co-author of many journal articles and book chapters about the psychology of addiction and the author of three books, The Heart of Addiction, Breaking Addiction, a seven-step handbook for ending any addiction, and The Sober Truth, Debunking the Bad Science Behind 12-Step Programs and the Rehab Industry. Dr. Dotis has been honored by the Division on Addictions at Harvard Medical School for distinguished contribution to the study and treatment of addictive behavior. You've been elected a distinguished fellow of the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry. You've been asked to lecture across the United States, Canada, and Europe about the understanding of addiction that you've developed. And I've been after you for months, Dr. Dotis. Uh, thank you so much. We're finally doing this interview. Um, and it just seems like addiction is a, such a vast problem. It's ruined so many people's lives, I think, with the pandemic and the stressors with the economics and everything else. Uh, people are even more susceptible to uh, to becoming addicted to whatever. And there's not just alcoholism, but there's all kinds of uh, addiction substances as well as internet addiction, which I wanted to ask if you know anything about. But let me let me turn it to you. Can you start us off for the lay listener? Like, what is an addiction? What's the current frame of understanding? Well, I think that is the right question. Uh, One of the problems that we all have faced in understanding it is that the word itself is confusing. There are two ways to use that word, and they don't have really anything to do with each other. Mm -hmm. The way that most people think about it is physical addiction, which is a property of your body, really, as much as a property of the drug. Right. Uh, And that occurs with certain drugs which uh, develop... uh, if, to which you develop a kind of immunity, what's called tolerance. Mm-hmm. So after you take the drug like alcohol or heroin, if you take it for a long enough time, your body becomes adapted to it, and then it no longer has the same effect. So you're mm-hmm. tolerant to it. And then as a consequence, you need higher and higher doses in order to get the same effect. Right. The flip side of that is that if you once you are adapted or tolerant, then... When you remove the drug, if you do it suddenly, you have a reaction, a withdrawal reaction from withdrawing the drug. And the withdrawal reaction is always unpleasant and sometimes is dangerous. So 
The withdrawal reaction from alcohol, for example, involves first shaking and then seizures. Withdrawal reaction from something like heroin is extremely uncomfortable with a lot of gastrointestinal upset, but actually is not dangerous. It's just awful, but not dangerous. But that's physical addiction. And it turns out that has nothing to do with the problem of addiction. The reason I say that is that there are lots of people uh, who have had physical addiction who never go on to have what we really think of when we think of addiction, that is a compulsive need to repeat the behavior or repeat mm-hmm. taking the drug. Um, so physical addiction is actually quite easy to treat from a medical standpoint. If you go into a detox, you get treated for physical addiction. Let's say it's alcohol. When you come out, you're no longer physically addicted. So you'd have to build up tolerance again. Right. But we all know that being detoxed um, doesn't cure alcoholism or any other addiction. So people then go back to using the same drug or doing the same behavior a year or five years later, 10 years later, and they're back on the same path. So the, the question is, uh, what is the cause of the need to go back again and again when there isn't even any physical addiction? And that's where that's what my work has been about. What is the psychology? Why do people keep doing this compulsive behavior? We also know just there's an enormous amount of evidence for what I'm saying. But just to give you one example, um, a famous example. Please. In, uh, in uh, Vietnam, during the Vietnam War, there was an epidemic of heroin use and addiction in the soldiers because there was a lot of heroin available and it was a particularly high quality. So a lot of soldiers used it and became addicted because you can't help it. It's a physical issue. At the same time, in the United States, back home, there wasn't considered to be an epidemic of heroin addiction. And what happened was the stateside folks who went in to be detoxed from heroin had it went out on uh, went out from the detox, and almost 100% of them resumed using. Mm-hmm. So the success rate of the detox was approximately zero. So when the soldiers came back home through California, there was a, a lot of fear that now our soldiers had been addicted and they would become addicts. Right. So they were all uh, sent, all the ones who were identified as having a heroin addiction were sent to a detox. And then they fanned out around the country when they came home. Um, a uh, uh, one of the, a researcher at uh, George Washington University in St. Louis did something that no one had done. She followed them up about six months later. And what she discovered was that over 90% of them, the soldiers, now veterans, never used heroin again. So it was exactly the opposite result of the stateside people. How could you understand this? They had the same drug, the same addiction. Well, the answer is that physical addiction doesn't turn you into an addict. It may make you physically addicted. But once these soldiers came home, they no longer needed to take it for any emotional reason. So they didn't. You might say that they used heroin in Vietnam because they were in a terrible environment, which caused them to need to do something. But once they were out of that environment, they didn't have something in their minds which made it necessary. The people who were using heroin uh, stateside had something in their minds. You might say they had the Vietnam in their minds. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't stop doing it because they had some issues within them that they were uh, dealing with through the heroin. Mm-hmm. So physical addiction is not really important. Uh, I mean, it's a real problem, but it's not the cause of what we call addiction. 
So my work has been all about trying to understand this compulsive behavior and how to treat it. Fascinating. So I have so many questions to ask you. Um, I, I guess I want to start by just, I've heard this metaphor used over and over again, that the you can't turn a pickle back into a cucumber when trying to understand, you know, alcoholism or drug addiction. What sayest thou on that one? Oh, uh, well, if by, if by pickling <laughs> you mean becoming physically addicted, you certainly can go back to being a cucumber, as with these soldiers. But there's another thing also that bears on this. We always talk about drugs, especially alcohol. But you know, in the real world, people switch from drug addictions to non-drug addictions all the time. As you mentioned in the introduction, I used to run a clinic for compulsive gamblers. Well, the most common story of these uh, people were that when they were teenagers, they were polydrug abusers. They used all sorts of stuff on the street. Mm -hmm. And many of them stopped doing that when they got at their 20s and then became strictly alcoholics. So now they use only alcohol. We would tend to see them in their 30s. And by that point, uh, a large number of them had stopped drinking and they stopped using drugs, but now they couldn't stop gambling. So like symptom substitution, like something like that? Yes, that the focus of the addiction, whatever you are using addictively, Mm -hmm. switch and it doesn't have to even be to a drug so knowing that uh helps to understand the lack of importance of the physical factors of drugs because it's not about the drug it's about the need to use the drug right. and uh, an even more dramatic example which i, I described in, in one of my books was a woman who uh was a, a, addictively using the drug uh, percodan which is a mild opiate and she couldn't stop. And then we talked for a while and eventually she did stop. But she came in one day and she said, well, I've stopped using the Percodam, but now I'm going crazy. I said, why do you say that? She said, I can't stop cleaning my house. Oh said, my goodness. <laughs> I'm compulsively cleaning. I'm cleaning it with a Q-tip. I can't stop. So if you thought about these things as different, you'd have to say, well, now she has a brand new diagnosis. Now she's got you know, uh, house cleaning itis or whatever you call it. <laughs> but in fact, she had the same problem. It's just that it had switched from, from a compulsion to drink or to use a Percodan to a compulsion to clean the house. So, yeah. So if you've got the psychology, you've got to treat the psychology, the thing that makes people need to use it. The drug part is, you know, it's really secondary. So there's a, a, to use a catchphrase, a biopsychosocial framing. Is, does that work in terms of your understanding? Or It works if you're describing all cases, and then you, but it's, it's not that helpful because the people who only have the biological effect, like the soldiers in Vietnam, are really in a different category. The people who have uh, the addiction, like my patient who was cleaning her house, there is no biological piece to that. Right. So, you know, you can say it's everything, but it's really, it's not useful to say, in fact, it's, it's harmful to say that because you really want to distinguish the people who have a biological problem with physical addiction from the people who have a psychological issue, which makes them repeat it. Great. So follow-up question for those of us who've adopted young children 
from other countries who had fetal alcohol effects to uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, there is a biological genetic thing, is there not? I don't oh, know. Look, obviously, look, you can die from alcoholism and it, it kills your liver. So, of course, there are biological effects of drugs, but that's a different topic from addiction. Right. Good. But so is it incorrect to think that someone who was in the first two years and in utero, the mother was drinking, that they're more susceptible to alcoholism? Or is that in your experience no, no, not? As far as I know, there's no evidence for that at all. I mean, there have been an enormous number of genetic studies, as you may know, uh, which I reviewed in my first book. Um, and the bottom line is that People have been looking for a gene for alcoholism for decades, and mm -hmm. they've never found it because it doesn't exist. It's not, a, it's not that kind of thing. Now, if you want to say, is there any genetic loading for this condition? Um, might be. I mean, genetics controls all of us, really. We're controlled by our genes. <laughs> right. um, but to say that it's a genetic disorder is not correct because genetics don't work that way. You know, unless you have a real genetic disorder. I'm very relieved to hear you say that because I've been operating with a, a faulty, you know, paradigm in my head around this issue. So that actually relieves my stress a little bit or anxiety. But let, I want to go straight to your latest book um, uh, called The Sober Truth about 12-step programs. And I've been... Sure approached for decades from people who've read my book, uh, Combating Cult Mind Control, and they said, Steve, AA is a cult, so you've got to, you know, and I'm like, I don't know, there's a lot of people who are helped, and alcoholism is really terrible, and it has some attributes, but doesn't have other attributes, and I wanted to flesh out, and your book really seemed to be very scholarly and well-researched. Tell us the sober truth about 12-step programs, uh, and then I want to get into what is effective to help people from your sure. experience. Um, well, we, won't, we don't have to go through the whole history, but it's an, it's an interesting history about AA because it does affect the way AA works. Hmm. Um, AA uh, came out of uh, uh, specific religious groups in England called Oxford groups, right. and uh, they were, they had nothing to do with addiction, but the group was a, uh, a specific Christian faith which believed in the idea that the closer you are to God, the more free of ill you will be. The less connected to God, the more sick you'll be. So uh, that became adapted uh, by uh, 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 Bill W., who founded AA that became adapted to addiction in his mind. So he said, look, if you, you have an illness, you have this disease called alcoholism, he said, and your solution is to get closer to God. So that's how the 12 steps began. Turn your life over to God, which became a higher power, and then follow, you know, follow that and stay, stay in touch. And I would add just that part of it is you're, you have to admit you're powerless Completely right. powerless, and therefore only God can help you right. in right. that paradigm. So that's how it, that's how it got started, and then how it became popular was uh, another interesting story. But 
That had to do with a tremendous public relations campaign started in the 1940s, because uh, initially AA was not accepted by the medical establishment or any professional establishment, uh, but uh, they began to publish uh, data which was not right, saying that everybody who goes to AA does well. That was never true, um, but it then became very popular. So how does AA work and does it work? Um, it turns out that, and what we looked at in the book was we looked back over 50 years of studies of AA uh, effectiveness. And it, most of the studies are not properly done in this way. What they did was they followed people in AA um, for a varying length of time, usually not very long, six months, a year. One of the studies went as long as uh, eight years. Um, but what they did was they measured the uh, amount of alcohol use in various ways. But when people dropped out of the program, they dropped out of the study. Now, everybody who didn't do well dropped out of the program, All right. naturally. So the people that were left were people who did well. And then they reported that result and they said, look, we have you know, a 70% success rate or 80% success rate. But the success rate was only with a very tiny percentage of the people who were in the, in the study. Right. And they never corrected that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what we went back and looked at. And if you add back in all the people who dropped out, then it turns out that the success rate of AA is between 5% and 8% over across mm-hmm. over all these studies. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of things that, that come out of that. But one thing, 5 to 8% is not nothing. So there are people who do well, and uh, the people who do well are um, thrilled with the effect, and they often write about it. So if you go to the recovery, so-called recovery section of a bookstore, you'll find books written about how AA saved a person's life. Right. Those are true, but these are not people thinking scientifically. They're not saying it saved my life, but it likely, over 90% chance, will not save your life right. because of the statistics. But no one says that. So that's one consequence. The other consequence is that um, AA has become so powerful that people accept that it's the right treatment for alcoholism or that matter, other, the various other 12-step programs for various other problems. Mm-hmm. So people believe that. And as a consequence, they go to these meetings and they expect to get well, whereas it's extremely unlikely that they will. But then they're told, work the program harder. I mean, they don't use this language exactly, but they're sort of saying, it's your fault if you don't get well. You should mm-hmm. be working harder at it. And I can tell you that I've known an endless number of people who work very hard today, and they still don't get better from it. It's not really their fault. It's because the program is extremely limited. So... It's been harmful to a lot of people. It's been helpful, but it's been harmful to a lot of people. And yeah, so- and I want to I want to interrupt you for one second and sure. just say, like, I have a page on twelve step programs on my website, Freedom of Mind, and I started by saying, if you're in a twelve step program and it's helped you to have a career and stable relationships with friends and family, and it's working for you, don't stop it. I agree. But if it's not working, for you, or you, you know, or someone's trying to force you into it. Know there are alternatives that have 
good success rates. That's yeah. it. I'm passing it back to you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, you know, the people who, are, who have done well in it or who have a vested interest in it, I'll come back to that in a second, um, are, they proselytize for it. And so it's very, and, and you can't really talk to them very much. I mean, they believe in it. It has a very, because it started out as a religious idea, it has a, a lot of religious fervor behind it. Um, one of the things, one of the arguments is that, you remember I said that people are told, work the program harder, go back, do more meetings, 90 meetings, and 90, 90 meetings in 90 days, that sort of thing. So the argument that they make about the flawed science in these studies is they say, well, look, the problem is that these people didn't work at it. If you work at it, you'll do well. That's how they explain it. They say, of course, we, we don't consider the dropouts because they didn't do the program. But it's, it's fallacious. That just isn't true. Many, many, many people have tried to do the program. It's not, the, it's not their fault. So I actually got interested in the reverse issue, which is, why does it work at all? What is it? Uh-huh. So it turns out there have been some studies about this. And AA, if you think about it, what AA is, is a social group. Right. And socialization, that is being in a group of people who accept you, who like you, uh, who, are, who are like you, who have a similar problem, right. is a very supportive thing to do for everybody, regardless of your whatever is bothering you. Yep. For some people, that's very helpful. Now, why that is, I'll come back to later. But for some people, it's very helpful. And for that 5 to 8% of people who find that helpful, that's great. They get a lot out of it. Um, it also explains why there are people who uh, do well for a while and then have suffer a catastrophic uh, breakdown because they're doing well dependent on their attachment to these other people. And if that breaks down, then so does their sobriety. Interesting. Because mm -hmm. it, it isn't that something changed inside of them, it's that they had a different environment. So, uh, so that, that, that's, that's that. So thing. there's the group component, but my understanding is there's a sponsor also, that some, some senior person who will be there for you come high or hell water, you know, high water, whatever the expression right. is. Right. And, and, and that's one of the ways that sometimes that people who have done well suddenly fail because their sponsor, who they relied upon emotionally, not just, you know, as right. a helper, uh, falls off the wagon and then they fall off the wagon because it all depended on the attachment to this other person, which they relied upon sort of the way um, uh, children rely on their parents. And that mm. way, you know, it's devastating for a child who's, looks up to his parent who says, you know, he's a, he or she is a God and that makes me feel good and protected. But if it turns out the parent fails and the child often has terrible trouble. Right. I'm not saying these people are children. This, this, this kind of uh, relationship occurs in adults all the time also. Absolutely. Yep. Um, you know, if you're a, if you're a Tom Brady fan and you, you, you have a, his football jersey and, and when he does well, you feel good about yourself. When he fumbles the ball away, you don't feel so good about yourself. That's the adult version. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. So, um, what talk talk to uh, our audience about what has worked and what has been helpful? Or did you finish 
talking about what has worked with 12-step program. You talked about the community and the socialization. We mentioned yeah. the sponsor. Is there anything else that we didn't cover? Well, there is. And I think that gets to your other question too, because I, if the way I've uh, written about addiction for the last 20 plus years is, is this. Uh, if you, I'll, I often explain this by telling a little story, if you can. Stories are great. Love stories, please. Okay. So I was seeing a man who um, had um, alcoholism. But again, it could have been, you know, gambling. It could have been eating. It could have been running. It could have been any kind of addictive behavior. But he was, he was drinking too much. So at the time of this vignette, he had been abstinent from drinking for about six months. And um, he came in one day to see me and he said, well, doc, he said, I blew it. I said, what happened? And he told me this story. He said, he went downtown with his wife the day before and uh, they were gonna do different activities. So he dropped her off to do her uh, shopping and then he parked the car and then he went and he did his activity. And they had agreed to meet at a certain spot downtown at a certain time. So at that time, he showed up, but she didn't. So he waited and waited, 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 waited. She never showed up. Now, this was in the days before cell phones, so he couldn't call. Right. And she was often late. So he wasn't worried about her, but he was stuck. There was nothing he could do. He was standing in that street corner. He couldn't wait for her in the car because he had dropped her off before he parked her. She didn't know where it was. So he was getting more and more frustrated standing there. And finally, he told me he spotted a bar across the street and down the block. And he went down and he, he got a drink. So that was the story. So I said, well, I said, uh, did it help? And he said, yeah. So I said, well, let me ask you a question. Um, when did you start to feel better? And he said, he said, well, I was drinking, but then he stopped himself. And he said, when did I start to feel better? I actually started to feel better when I ordered the drink. I said, really? And then he thought some more and he said, actually, I started to feel better when I walked in the bar. I said, huh? And he thought some more and he said, well, if you want to know the truth, I started to feel better when I was standing on the street corner and decided to go get a drink. Now, this is just a vignette, but I've heard this exact thing from many people. So it clued me into the fact that something had already happened. This is before any alcohol was in his system, back when he decided. That fixed something temporarily. What did it fix? Well, it turned out that what it fixed was that when he decided to have the drink, he solved his problem of feeling helpless. Now he wasn't stuck anymore. He wasn't helpless. He could go have a drink, which he anticipated would make him feel better. So the first part of my idea about addiction is that the kind of emotional experience that precipitates urges to drink or to take a drug or to gamble. To or vape, to smoke cigarettes, we have to add, because that's killed sure. a lot of people. Sure. The urge arises from a feeling of helplessness. And it makes sense in a certain way because 
everybody will tell you if you ask them that they they need to have a drink. And then when they do, they don't feel as helpless. This, the reality doesn't change, of course. Right. But the inner reality changes. Now I can do something. Right. Yeah. Okay. So having uh, uh, discovered that, I also had to think about whether, uh, about the fact that lots of people who suffer with addictions uh, deal with helplessness all the time. They don't drink. I mean, they get stuck in traffic like we all do, and they don't have to have a drink because of that. So it turns out that it's not just any helplessness. It has to be a certain kind of helplessness which feels overwhelming to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's really important because when you treat somebody, or when people think about themselves, <clears throat> I always recommend that they look at the times when they either do the behavior or look back to what just happened before they had the urge to do the behavior, which is just as important, more important. Mm-hmm. And if you do that repetitively, you will eventually discover what kind of thing it's overwhelming for you. So in the case of this man, for instance, um, uh, when he was a child, he was a, a latchkey child. He's his, he, he, had, he was an only child, and uh, he lived in a house which seemed enormous to him. He was little. And both of his parents worked. And uh, he would come home from preschool or early elementary school, which he was able to walk to. And he would come in, and he would get the key out from under the mat, and he would let himself into the house. Right. And then he would wait there for his parents to come home. And it was probably only an hour, an hour and a half, but to him, it seemed like an eternity. Mm. And he, it became very important to him that he not have to repeat what was for him a traumatic experience. So when he was standing on the street corner, you know, 30 years later, he was again stuck waiting for somebody who he hoped and needed to have to come to him. This is not a psychotic problem. He knew the difference between his wife and his child and his parent, but it was the same issue. So it was for him overwhelming. And for each person, it's going to be different. Anyway, that's the first piece. So that no, was- so in other words, it was an unconscious, you know, emotional situation from his childhood that he was not having a conscious solution of strategies or techniques for how to deal with his his feelings from childhood. Is that what we're... Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And, and he did have a solution. His solution was to drink, which he had been using for a very long time. Right. So that was the first part of my idea about addiction. Okay. So then to return to the vignette, uh, I said to him, well, look, okay, so we understand uh, what triggered this. I said, but let me ask you a question. You've been abstinent for six months. So at that key moment, what I call a key moment, at that moment where you decided to go and drink, did you have an internal conflict? Did you say to yourself, I'm really, really trying not to drink and I've been working hard at it and I'm glad I've been working hard at it, but I really want to drink. Oh, but I'm trying to stop. Oh, but I really want to drink. Was there a conflict like that? And he looked me right in the eye and he said, do you want to know the truth, God? You tell me if you need to believe this out later. He said, fuck it. I'm going to have a drink. And I've heard those exact words 
from a lot of people. So what did it mean? He cursed, you know, this is a very strong thing to say. So I became interested in that. What made him say something so strong? Damn it, I'm going to do it. Which is what most people say if you really press them about, about that moment. So there was some very strong uh, uh, feeling here. And it really, if you had tried to stop him in that moment, which is true of most people with an addiction, you would have gotten into trouble. He would have had the same energy. He would have pushed you aside and said, no, you're not going to stop me. And of course, we see variants of that all the time with people who have addictions. Right. I'm, I'm, they walk out of the house. No, no one is going to stop. So this energy is a kind of rage, really. You're not going to get in my way. Uh, and even I am not going to get in my way. It doesn't matter that I've been trying to stay abstinent. I'm going to do it. So we know something about rage in human psychology. And uh, this kind of rage where nothing else matters, everything else is wiped away in that moment, mm -hmm. has a name in our fields called narcissistic rage. But the name is not so important as it is that it's known to be an overwhelming force which can destroy everything else, at least in the moment. Right. So this kind of... Uh, let me explain briefly. The narcissistic piece is that when you are made helpless, no matter who you are, that is a kind of narcissistic injury. In, in other words, we all need to be free. If somebody tries to forget addiction, if somebody traps you somewhere, puts you in a cave and you can't get out, you will eventually start screaming and yelling. You're going to hit the rocks. You'll do whatever you have to. You might even break your wrists hitting those rocks to get out of the cave. Mm-hmm. That's a normal kind of reaction to such narcissistic uh, injury that you are going to, that I am being tracked. And if you, if you hit the rocks and broke your wrist, no one would say you're self-destructive. Right. People I want to clarify for our listeners that yeah. narcissism, this is my training and you can correct me, but narcissism is best thought of on a continuum yes. from like malignant narcissism to like more healthy right. ego narcissism, right? So, right. so I don't want because my listeners have heard me talk about cult leaders as malignant narcissists who think they're above the law and pathological right. liars. We're not saying it's like that. We're talking right. about a, a right. healthier it, version, right? And this is that's right. And and uh, actually, that was my next point. I was going to say it would not be true to say that folks who suffer with addictions have narcissistic personality disorder. They don't. I mean, as much as anyone else says they do, but, you know, that's not the issue. The issue is that they respond to this particular kind of injury with this particular response. Okay, so um, so this gave me the, uh, the second part of my idea. So if you see addiction as a response to overwhelming helplessness in a way that's important to you, and the drive that pushes addiction, that makes addiction look the way it does, is the kind of narcissistic rage, you might say normal rage, at being utterly helpless. Then we've explained two pieces of the puzzle as far as I'm concerned. Why, why people do it and what the drive is behind it. So, um, This is fantastic, was, by the way. I'm so grateful that you're explaining this. And I just want to say, I read a book by Flores about attachment disorder and addiction, 
And that's exactly the point that he made about rage against the helplessness is the underlying component. Um, so anyway, forgive me for adding that. Oh, that's in. fine. So that's, that's a two part. Now I had a third part of my idea. Yep. So the next question I had for myself was, okay, I understand that, but why drink? Why did he have to actually go and drink? Even if we understood the, 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 uh, the, the cause behind it. And so, um, the, um, the answer to that one, I'm going to tell another little story. Please, love stories. So, Best okay. way to teach. Okay, sure. So, um, when I started this, actually, this is part of the same story. When I started, I said he was absolutely helpless standing on that corner. But was he? Actually, he wasn't. And the reason he wasn't is because I didn't mention the possibility that he could have gone home. Remember, he didn't want to, he couldn't leave because he would have abandoned his wife. She wouldn't know where he was. But he could have, right? I'm not saying he should have, but he could have. Right. Let's say he got so angry with her that he said, I'm not waiting. I'm going back to my car. I'm driving home. Let her figure it out. And my point is that, again, I'm not recommending this, but if he had done that, he wouldn't have had to have a drink. Because he would have solved the, he wouldn't have been helpless by doing something else. Exactly. In fact, he would have done something that actually had something to do with the problem. Right. So the third part of my theory is that all addictions are what we call in my field a displacement. You could call it a substitute. Instead of doing the thing that would directly deal with your helplessness, you do something else, which becomes the behavior that is recognized. If there's something else you do is you have to go run a mile, then that's your compulsive behavior. If there's something else you do is to drink, then that's your compulsive behavior, which we call an addiction. Mm -hmm. And that also, the, the displacement idea, I think is very useful because it explains something that's clinically important, which is like my woman with the uh, cleaning her house people change the focus of their addiction all the time. Mm. Um, and in this day and age, unfortunately, most people in, in, the, in psychiatry tend to label every symptom as a new disease. You know? <laughs> all right. so, so my woman who had the cleaning, we would have had to say, well, you had alcoholism. Now you've got a brand new diagnosis. You've got you know, compulsive cleaning disorder. And then the next time when she when she switched to, um, you know, exercising, well, now you've got compulsive exercising disorder. The reason that people tend to label these symptoms as diseases is because they don't understand them. Mm. If they understood it, they would say these are just symptoms of the one thing that is causing. Them. And that's the problem across psychiatry. It's like it's so common these days for somebody to say, I have here are my diagnoses. I have social anxiety disorder, which is a made-up term. I have depression. I have, um, you know, um, oh, I don't know. I have some sort of sexual symptom. You know, I have, I've got so many things wrong with me. Actually, you're one human being who throws off these different symptoms. And if you're going to be effectively treated, you have to treat you as a human being 
And that will help you to understand all these symptoms. Right. I just came back from New Orleans last night uh, from the American Psychiatric Association convention, and I attended a, a thing by a McLean Gunderson Center on a borderline personality disorder. And uh, Dr. Che was basically saying a version of what you said is that don't get stuck in the labeling. And there's so much comorbidity, there's so much other things going on with young people trying to figure out their identity and separate from parents and deal with peers and all of that, that we need to address the whole person and where they're at. Yes, and, and also that the whole person has caused all these things. It's not just that they're comorbidities, they are both pieces of the same thing. Interesting, it's fascinating. So, um, what sayest thou uh, uh, simply about 12-step programs? If it hasn't worked, what, what do you recommend that people do? Is there anything that can be addressed? And I was speaking with a colleague from my forensic think tank uh, program in psychiatry and the law. I know you know uh, Harold Burstein and, and, and Tom Gutile well, Barry Roth was um, you know, just pointing out to me that uh, he said 10% of everyone diagnosed with alcoholism, 10, 10, only 10%, uh, there's only 10% treatment available for people who are formally diagnosed with alcoholism. Uh, have you ever heard that statistic? He was well, just the, sharing. Yeah, I mean, the there is not much good treatment because people don't understand the problem. First of all, if you look at the treatment effectiveness by behavior, which sounds reasonable, but is really not as reasonable as it sounds. Um, one of the other problems, which I didn't even get into with these studies of uh, alcoholism uh, of AA, is that people were considered a success if they stopped drinking, which is nice. But if they stopped drinking and started using some other drug, they didn't get picked up. Or if they stopped drinking and then became um, compulsive gamblers, they didn't get picked up. So the data is, is, is way and off. I've heard there's a lot of cigarette smoking at AA meetings. Is that true? It used to be you couldn't walk into an AA meeting because you would choke to death if you weren't already used to the smoke. That uh -huh. has changed because people aren't smoking as much. Uh, but this problem exists. People are still doing other, th other things. Got it. Um, but... Um, Sorry, I've lost my train of thought. What were you no, asking? No, so we're talking about the 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 fact that people who have a, a diagnosed oh, can't get treatment, right. and like, what do you do other than look for right. your local AA meeting if you're listening to this? Right. And someone you love has a problem, right. or you have a problem. Well, and this again, this is the problem with even even in our discussion, people start by saying, "Well, if AA doesn't help you." It's the wrong place to start. AA is only going to help 5 to 7%. That shouldn't be the first thing on your mind. Right. It is because it's free, but it shouldn't be from a standpoint of treating. Right. Well, unfortunately, there is no magic bullet. Uh, there are other things you can do, and I'll come to the thing that I particularly recommend. But right. there are harm reduction treatments, which, uh, unlike AA, do not insist on abstinence. And for some people, that's extremely helpful because for the reasons I said, they can't give it up. It's too emotionally important to them, hmm. but they can moderate it in some ways. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. It, this is anathema to AA people. They say, oh my God, it's, you can't do that. Yeah, it's but all or nothing are, for them. It's total right. absolute abstinence and it's total powerlessness too in terms of an ideology. Right. Uh, and uh, by the way, the powerlessness, another piece of why AA does work when it works is that if you think about how I've uh, understood addiction, AA does address that indirectly. They don't know that they're doing it. But when they focus on powerlessness, they're saying, look, we know, we don't really know, but we are addressing your helplessness, your powerlessness. Right. So their solution to being powerless is not to drink, but it's to attach yourself to a higher power. So they are dealing with the emotional piece for some people, although they don't think of it that way. And, uh, and uh, is it true that there are 12-step programs that don't say about a higher power? Or is that like the ideological purity um, thing? What they've done is that they changed the meaning of the term higher power. Uh-huh. When it started out, higher power was God. But then, because so many people had different gods, uh, and also people didn't believe in it altogether. So the current way of thinking about it, but not everywhere, is that, you know, make your higher power whatever it is. One of the slogans they have is they say, you know, it could be a doorknob. Um, really? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, because they want their system to work. They don't, they're not so much into the, 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 the details. The However, another thing about AA is that it is not a nationally controlled organization and it's not a professional organization. So every AA meeting is independent. Mm-hmm. What that means is that there are some good ones, the people who you and I might respect, who are rational, sensible people, who go about things in a way that we would hope. But there are plenty that are not rational and are, in fact, cruel or even sadistic. And there's, right. you know, there's been a lot. If you go online, you look up problems with AA, you'll, sound, you'll find a thousand sites talking about the terrible experiences of people who have been abused by senior members of AA, right. sometimes called 13-stepping where senior members take advantage of junior members, either sexually or financially. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, no, it's very she- important. I'm so yeah. glad that we're doing this. Uh, thank you. Yeah. yeah please continue. Um, so as far as treatment goes, there's harm redu- there are harm reduction programs. There's, there's something called Smart Recovery, which is, a, uh, is a, an organization that has a sense of humor. Uh, instead of the, the big book, which AA has, which is, the book called Alcoholics Anonymous, they have what they call the little book. And smart recovery is based on a purely intellectual idea. They say, let's learn about uh, addiction scientifically, and that will help us. Unfortunately, it doesn't help that much because if learning about it solved the problem, then we would all be in better shape. But again, there are some people who find it useful for the same reason, oddly, as AA, because it's a group. Mm-hmm. It's a group of people who tend to think that way, and it's supportive. Right. But in terms of actual treatment of the problem, if you see addiction as a symptom that works the way I described, then what you'd really want to do is to help people to understand the symptom. And the short version of it is, well, let me start the long, the long version. Sure. Let's take my man on the street corner as an example. So let's say he got into therapy. Actually, he wasn't there, but let's say he got into therapy. What he would want to understand is what you and I discussed. He would want to say, look, I realize now that I have trouble dealing with this kind of 
um, traumatic feeling of being left alone. And it's not only being physically left alone, which was the case when he was uh, on the street corner. And it wasn't just being physically left alone as a child. After all, there are plenty of latchkey children who do fine. So it was broader. So in his therapy, we would have to look into what it really meant to him to be left alone. There's a whole story there, which was terribly important to him as a child, and which you try to work out. Once you work that out, <coughs> then the future instances of that occurring, which led him to drink, would no longer be, lead him to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's the long-term solution. But that requires treatment. The short-term solution is you should still be in treatment, but like my, like the, my, um, uh, the fact that this man could have just left his wife and then he wouldn't have drunk. That's not such a great solution. But there is almost always something that you could do in that moment, if you, once you understand it, which deals more directly with the problem. Because if all addictions are a displacement, they're a substitute. If you right. undo the substitution, then you've got a solution. Right. So, for example, um, uh, in my second book, Breaking Addiction, I give a, a million examples of doing this sort of thing. So there was a man who was in a meeting. He was a very, he was a shy man. He was inhibited. And uh, even though he had good ideas, with a bunch of people sitting around, especially more senior people, he often didn't speak, even if he was the only person who had the right idea. Right. So he would leave a meeting like that. And in his case, he was a cocaine user. So he would go out and snort cocaine. But after a while, when he came to understand what the issue was, uh, the ideal solution obviously would have been for him to speak up in the meeting. Then he wouldn't have had to use the cocaine. Well, he couldn't quite do that yet. It's too scary for him. But what he realized when he understood it was when he left the meeting, he realized it's, it's not too late especially when the alternative is going on a cocaine binge, which has been very destructive. Right. It's not too late. So what he did was he got into the pattern, the pattern of sending emails to people in the meeting afterwards. It's a little bit odd, but he did it. He sent everybody an email saying, look, folks, I didn't say this in the meeting, but here's what I think. And it wasn't a perfect solution, but it was enough. So he didn't feel as helpless as he did. And eventually, you know, over a period of time, he, he learned to speak up. He, he became less inhibited. Mm-hmm. So um, the short-term solution is for people to get into enough therapy. Doesn't mean they have to be, you know, in 10 years of therapy, but enough therapy to understand the issues for them, which they will discover by looking back, not at the addictive behavior, but at the point where they decide to do the addictive behavior, which could be days before, by the way, mm-hmm. or weeks before sometimes, to then identify what, the thing is for them that they can't stand. And then you can look back and see when it's going to, you can anticipate when it's going to occur, which helps because now you're not, it's not an overwhelming urge in that moment. Now you say, I mean, I have people who say to me next Tuesday, I'm going to have to gamble. How do they know that? Because they know what's happening on Tuesday and they know what, what's overwhelming about that for them. So now they've got a couple of days to plan to do something else with that helplessness. So what are Whatever. what are some other substitute behaviors that you found helpful for some of your patients? Well, um, I mean, some of them may seem silly. There was a man in my in the heart of addiction in my first book. My, the first chapter was about a man who uh, uh, 
when he had the urge to, he was cleaning his attic, which was a compulsive thing he felt he had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, and he was up there one day after this, this is after he'd been in a good deal of treatment. And he started thinking again about having a drink, which is what I'd always done. And he said, I'm not going to make myself clean the attic, which I hate. I'm going to go out and, and run. I love to run. So he did that. Yep. So he's running a treatment for alcoholism. No, of course not. But for him, it solved his problem of helplessness in that. Mm-hmm. And he also realized he shouldn't be forcing himself to clean out the attic. So he didn't. So he had a messy attic, but he didn't drink. That's um, great. And there, again, I have a thousand examples in, in, uh, in the breaking addiction. That's um, w- wonderful. But they're idiosyncratic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, if you had uh, the ear of uh, the Department of Public Health and the National Institute of Mental, what would you want to see done? Like, what are the action steps that could help millions of people who are suffering? What I would want to see done is to uh, two things. One is I would make sure that we stop saying, and that the states who often control this, individual states control this, in their uh, departments of health, we would stop making 12-step programs the priority. We would stop selling them and telling people to go. And we would publicize that so we didn't have doctors and psychiatrists telling people, oh, you have an addiction, don't talk to me, go, go deal with an addiction counselor who's gonna tell you about AA. We would stop that, that's enormously harmful. Second of all, we have a lot of people treating addiction in this country, but they, unfortunately, all they know is AA. Mm. So I would re-educate them. These are decent people. They just don't know whatever told them how it works. Right. Uh, and by the way, I've heard from quite a number of people who do work in these programs that have come over to me after I give a talk and they say, you know, I agree with you, but I can't say that in my program. It's forbidden. Yeah, and yeah. I can tell you at the American Psychiatry Association meeting, I was with forensic psychiatrists when I told them I was going to interview you. They were like, oh, you know, don't don't talk negatively about 12 steps. It's not a right. cult. And I say cults for me are exist along the entire continuum of healthy to unhealthy. Right, and as long as you are have informed consent and you have freedom to choose, and the locus of control is in you, and etc., if it works, use it, and if it doesn't work, don't feel like it's your fault. Seek out something that will work for you. Is yeah, and maybe, and maybe figure out why you got into it to begin with. What it was that you were seeking, right? Yeah. Right, but I think I think the rage against the helplessness is such an important thing. I want my listeners to think about it, especially if they've had issues with addiction of any type. And right. I don't know, right now there's a vaping addiction thing that's being pushed by the companies to make more right. money selling right. tobacco in a different form. And right. I think it's wrecking a lot of lungs, frankly. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. And the other group that is uh, that pushes this uh, is there are people in uh, academicians who whose careers are based on AA. They're right. based on saying AA is is great, and they have tried for many years to try to prove it without any success. The uh, not long ago, 
I don't know if we're running out of time, but no, if, a, please continue. There was a um, a Cochrane report that came out about 15 years ago. The Cochrane collaboration does it vets science, and it, and they showed that AA was um, uh, basically not not effective. So people whose careers depend on AA work very hard to do a lot of studies after that to try to change that view. And they actually got control of the Cochrane collaboration. They wrote their own study for the Cochrane collaboration, which claimed that it had better results. But if you read the study, it actually is no different from the first study. They just, they just drew different conclusions. But the data on which they were basing this was by and large the same data, exactly. I mean, they were using the same studies. By far, the largest study that was ever done looking at the effectiveness of AA was done in the 1990s. And it was so large that it, it dwarfs every other study. And that was the, so it affects the, the, uh, the statistics. Right. Um, and that was still a part of this. And what they found was the same, same thing. If you ask them, what is the success? And you leave out all, and you add back in all the people who dropped out, it's the same. So there's mm-hmm. no change, but the, unfortunately there's been a political Change. Um, right. So it's a hot potato. I wanted to do this this uh, interview with you, and I want to emphasize again, e- even 5 to 8%, as terrible, as small a number as that is, still maybe millions of people that it's helped over decades. Absolutely. So if it's helped you in your life, you're Stay lucky. You're lucky. Right. <laughs> right. But if it hasn't helped... Don't walk around thinking you're a failure. The program works for everyone else, but not for you because you weren't going 90 days in a row to that's this right. meeting, et cetera. Is that correct? That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to give you the last word if there's any anything else. I'm going to really encourage people. I'm going to write a blog and, and list your books uh, if there are any other resources that you want to share in the blog or, or right now, feel free to. Well, to I would say, say one something. more thing because we haven't talked about rehabs, and um, the rehabs are, I'm sorry to say, mostly fraudulent uh, because they are AA programs, and so their success rate is the same as AA. And the problem with them is that they are enormously expensive, and people thinking that. If you go to the one that's the most expensive, that you're going to get the best treatment, that is absolutely false. And people, it's a tragedy. People spend a lot of money that they cannot afford to help their loved ones uh, for nothing. So, for example, uh, I published in, uh, in The Sober Truth, we published the, the uh, daily schedule at the Betty Ford Center, which is a famous one, mm-hmm. um, uh, because it's, it's public information. So we put it on the book. And if you take a look at it, you'll see there's virtually no treatment there. But what they what they do have is luxury meals. They have uh, horses that you can you know talk to. They have um, you know beautiful scenery you know out in Malibu. None of this has anything to do with treating addiction. But the cost is uh, forty thousand dollars a month. Now, if you are in a poor family and you have a child who's having a problem with addiction, you say, I'm going to, I'll give up everything because I want the, my child to have the best. And you spend $40,000 and, and he or she comes out and two months later, it's back doing the same addiction, which is what almost always happens. It's a tragedy. It shouldn't be happening. So, and this, one of the worst is um, 
I always mention this because it's, it's, it's sort of funny if it weren't so horrible, is um, uh, uh, the one that has a boat. The, um, uh, Scientology? Uh, no, no. That's, Free winds? It's a different... That's a uh, but they do an addiction treatment program to make you addicted to Scientology and reprogram yeah. you. Yeah, but right, right, right. Anyway, one of them has a boat and they it's part of the uh, treatment to be on this yacht. And uh, that program is $90,000 a month. It's just horrible. So I would say in terms of positive things, there are some, first of all, as far as rehab in general goes, nobody should go to a rehab that takes them away from their local home. Because if you do establish a connection with somebody there who you like, now you break that connection and you come home. So that's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Second of all, never go to anything that is extremely expensive that tells you that it has pools and horses and gourmet chefs because you're paying for that. Mm -hmm. And that's not worth it. There are some times when it's good to have a break. So there's nothing wrong with being going somewhere for 10 days or so getting detoxed if you need it, you know, but then get into a good therapy where you can talk to somebody about what the issues are that are, that are bothering you. Mm -hmm. That's, that's more effective. And there are some places that are not AA programs. There have been more and more actually lately. Mm -hmm. So make sure that they are not pushing that. Um, and, uh, you know, ch check out the, the, uh, the expense and check out the staff. If the staff has one psychiatrist who is supposedly supervising the whole thing, forget it. What you really want are good therapists. And if you really wanted to have a good rehab, by the way, instead of spending all that money on being in Malibu, you'd spend that money hiring good therapists, right. not just people who are recovering alcoholics, so-called. And before I let you go, I, I have to ask you this question about internet addiction, because I've been aware of people programmed to f their notifications and they're like constantly looking at their smartphones. Right. What right. do you think, Doc? Well, I think the answer to that is that, you know, you'll notice that I've been alternating the words compulsion and addiction uh, this whole hour. It's because they are the same. And one of the main, aside from my books, my main, uh, I think of myself as my main a contribution to the uh, academic literature has been to explain that compulsions and addictions are the same thing. And once you see it that way, it changes everything. Because mm. if, you are, if you have a compulsion to arrange everything on your desk, so it's all parallel to each other, you know, we all recognize that as a compulsive behavior. Right. We don't think of that as an addiction. But it's the same psychology. You're also doing something that will help you to feel more uh, in control of your life, you know, less helpless. So internet addiction or internet compulsion is the same thing, except that it has this one factor, which is important, which is unless you call the internet an object like a drug, it has no object. It's objectless, like um, uh, gambling addiction has no object unless you consider the casino an object. Running addiction has no object. We've been stuck on the idea coming from drugs that you have to have a thing that is the object. And we speak of things like being addicted to, he's addicted to alcohol. <clears throat> That's a very unfortunate way of thinking about it. That applies to physical addiction. Uh -huh. <clears throat> but you're not addicted to alcohol. You use alcohol because of your compulsive need. That's, that's so fascinating. But I, I 
from my work, so much online radicalization is happening where people are drawn into these cultish groups or very destructive, you know, extremist terrorist groups online. And they are spending all their time and energy on specific Telegram channels or Discord servers. And there's an illusion of community that's different than real life connection with people in your town that yeah. you can really relate in a personal way. Sure. So Dr. Lance Dotis, thank you so much for this incredible interview. Compulsi com compulsivity is what we want to understand more about folks and see the substance or alcohol or whatever as a a substitution or a displacement of the need of rage against helplessness. If that's if I if I yeah, summarize it sounds like that a nice thing. summary. Yeah, thank you so much and and um, and we'll be in touch about the blog. So thank okay. you. Okay. Good to talk with you. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast by Nasser Malik. To read in-depth articles about influence, both positive and negative, visit my website at freedomofmind.com. On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. I also have a three-and-a-half-hour online course titled Understanding Cults, The Basics, which can be found on my website. If you're a former cult member, I congratulate you on your bravery invite you to use the hashtag IGotOut and join our online community at IGotOut.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, love is stronger than mind control.